Genesis chapter 12. As Tim mentioned, um, today marks the official start of Advent. If you don't know, Advent means arrival. And so the season of Advent is a season of waiting for the arrival, specifically the arrival of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, it was about waiting uh, for the arrival of the Messiah the first time, right, that, that he would come. But in the New Testament, it's about waiting for his second coming, that he is coming again. It is a time to remind ourselves what he has accomplished when he came in the past and to focus our expectations on what the risen Christ will accomplish in the future. It's also a time for us to take seriously the promises that God made in the past and embrace what they mean for us right now in the present. So over the next four weeks, uh, we will be looking at four specific Old Testament promises, how they link to Jesus, and what they mean for our lives today. Because these promises indeed don't just say something about God in the past, and they don't only give us uh, hope for the future, but they also have profound implications uh, in showing us how to live right now in our present reality. One of the ways that God has initiated relationship with his people is through promises. And as he declares a promise, his people learn to trust him and to follow him and to look forward with expectation and have confident assurance for today. So we're taking the next few weeks to look at some of these promises. And in scripture, when a promise is formalized, it's called a covenant, which is what we find here in Genesis chapter 12. Covenants were well known throughout the ancient world. It was an agreement between two people. But what's unique about this covenant is that God is the one who's actually initiating it. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, by the way, Abram, Abraham, same dude. Sarai, Sarah, same lady. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household, from your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he sent out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel, Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this beautiful story of a couple people, your people, who you called and who you declared a promise to. Thank you for the way that you fulfilled this promise. And thank you for what this promise means for us today. And so we ask that as we study your word today, that we would experience the, the benefits of this blessing, even right here, right now, that we would be aware of it. We would 
be in the best way overwhelmed by it. Thank you for each person who is here today. We have gathered because uh, we want to worship you and we need to receive from you. We need to hear from you. And so thank you, Lord, that you are able to take your word and divide it up into a few hundred different pieces and apply it to each one of our hearts. For the person who's here today who is asking questions about you and wondering about who you are, we ask that you would reveal yourself to them. You would speak to us all as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't it interesting when you begin to uh, talk to people about God, how you begin to see how different people have a different uh, perspective of who God is. And often you realize that people have created caricatures of God. You know a caricature like at Disneyland, they draw a caricature where they pronounce and exaggerate one of your characteristics at the expense of some of the other characteristics, right? And so people create these caricatures of God and we have a tendency, many of us, to do the same thing. And so I would ask us like, who do you say God is? Who is Jesus to you? Because, you know, if you've talked to anybody, you know that you, you have like a, you got like a Santa Claus Jesus, right? You have a Santa Claus Jesus who is, who is kind, but he's soft, right? He's, he's nice, but he's weak. He's your, he's your pal. He's your, he's your buddy. He's your, he's your friend, and he's going he's gonna to be very sweet to you, and you like that. Until you need him to defend you or come to your rescue. He's great. Until you need him to do something extraordinary and powerful. But then you got superhero Jesus. He's powerful, but he's distant. He can defend you like nobody's business for sure. But he's not going to necessarily take an interest in the, the daily inner workings of your life. He's powerful enough to perform miracles. But you don't know if it really matters because he's probably not going to perform those miracles in your life. And then there's schoolmaster Jesus, accessible but unpredictable. He's there day in, day out. He sees everything you're doing. He knows everything you're doing. He is acquainted with every single thing that you are doing, but he's unpredictable. You don't really know what kind of mood he's going to show up in today, right? And if you, if you deliver, you do your job, maybe he's going to bless you, but who knows what's going to happen if you, you don't act right or you fail in some way mess up. We have a tendency to make these caricatures up about God, but none of those ideas are actually in the Bible. So if God is not like any of those models, and then we can't therefore then relate to God in this way, how can we relate to him? How can we have a relationship with him? What should we expect from him? Who should we expect him to be? What should we expect him to do? And how can we be sure of any of it? Well, these questions are addressed as we look at God's promise of blessing here in Genesis chapter 12. And the first thing I want us to see about God's promise of blessing is that his promise of blessing is great. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, would become great. They would have these profoundly beautiful lives. I mean, come on, who, who 4,000 years later has a song being sung about them in children's ministry? Father Abraham, right, had many sons, right? They would, lead, they, would, they, they would become great. They would lead these profound lives full of faith and obedience to God, and their descendants would become great. But what was the cause of their greatness? 
because their lives didn't necessarily begin great. In fact, here in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah are at a dead end, spiritually and physically. They're living in a society full of corruption, full of violence, full of evil, full of brokenness. And we don't know exactly how much they have allowed the culture to permeate their own lives. But we do know that it's enough for God to have to call them out of it. And so he does in verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. It seems that Abraham and Sarah are at a dead end spiritually. And so God is calling them out. But also, Abraham and Sarah are at a dead end Physically, specifically, they're old. Now, I'm not saying that 75 is old in general. Don't get all mad at me. But when you haven't had kids yet and you're still trying to have kids and you're 75, it's old. <laughs> and there's nothing that they can do about it. Sarah's womb is barren. There is no life in it. And there's nothing she can do to bring life they are in a hopeless and helpless situation. But it is into this helpless and hopeless situation that God speaks and says in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. And it is this word of promise and blessing from God that begins to bring hope to Abraham and Sarah. Without the promise of God, there, there is no hope. But he promises to do the impossible. He promises here to bless. And then what happens is his promise of blessing becomes the basis for which his people can trust him, for which we can have hope. When Abraham and Sarah left their country, it required trust. They were leaving everything that was comfortable to them and going to some unknown place. It would require trust. How could they know that they could trust God? Well, the greatness of God's promise produced confidence in their hearts to trust him. Though you seem to be spiritually at a dead end, Abraham, I'm going to bring good things to you. I'm going I'm to bring a great nation to you and from you. This is his promise to Abraham. Though you seem to be at a dead end physically, Sarah, I am going to bless you. I will bring life to you. And through you, it was the promise of God. And it was this great promise of blessing that moved them to be able to trust and obey God with confident hope. I don't know if there's any dreamers in the room, but man, I like to dream. I love to think about the, the future and I can see the future potential possibilities. And when I do that, I begin to experience the, 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 the goodness of those possibilities coming to pass as if they're happening right now. And I'm like, whew, that's good, right? It hasn't even happened yet. I'm like, oh, that's good. The flip side of that, though, is I, I see the future potential threats, and I feel those things as if they're happening right now also, which creates a lot of undue anxiety in my life, which makes me think, dude, your imagination's too wild. You need to, like, chill. You need to calm it down. But then I, I read passages like this and I realize that maybe the problem isn't that my imagination's too big, but that my perception of God is too small. Because when I really dwell on the greatness of God and the greatness of his promise of blessing, when I look at what he has already done and what he will do in the future, and I let those 
realities flood my heart and my mind, then they begin to drown out the seemingly overwhelming threats of the future. Because the greatness of God's promise brings calm to the worried heart. Amen? Amen? All right. And it's not just that his promise is great, but the nature of God's promise reveals the nature of his character. And this is really what Abraham and Sarah could bank on, right? This is why they could leave everything that they knew to follow God. It wasn't just that his promise was great. It was that the one who was promising it was great. The greatness of his promise shows the greatness of his power. In spite of human frailty, in spite of human uh, failure, God is powerful enough to bring about something from nothing. We just sang about it, right? Waymaker. Even when I can't see it, you're doing things. He's able to bring hope to a hopeless situation. He's able to bring death where there was, our life where there was death. He's able to make a way where there is no way. A miracle. He's able to create a miracle where there's just a mess. He's able to bring something beautiful when you, all you see is just ash from destruction. And in Sarah's inability to conceive, we actually see a picture of humanity and a picture of our own lives because whether you've experienced physical barrenness or not, every single one of us have experienced some kind of barrenness in our lives, whether it be spiritual or maybe relational, something else. And the truth is, there was nothing that Sarah could do to fix her barrenness. And there's nothing that that we can do, that humanity can do to bring life to our barrenness. There's no great amount of money. There's no great amount of, amount of uh, planning, ingenuity. No great amount of contacts and connections. No great amount of success. No great amount of power or knowledge can bring life. Only God can do that. There was nothing she could do to bring life to her womb. In fact, it, it must have seemed ludicrous and absurd that Abraham, to Abraham and Sarah that God would somehow bless all the nations through this elderly, childless couple. And yet, that is exactly what he did. And it wouldn't be the last time that God would choose an unlikely woman to carry a promised child. Almost 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ would be born to a poor, unmarried, teenage, virgin girl from a despised community. This is what God does because this is who he is. Abraham and Sarah would become great, but their greatness wouldn't come from them. As theologian Joseph Parker says, great lives are trained by great promises. What makes and shapes the life of the Christian is not your great accomplishments, friend. It is the great faithfulness of God. All right, Dom, I get it, man. He's great. He's powerful. But can I trust him? This brings us to our second point. Yes, because his promise of blessing is also good. Not only did God promise to do something great in the life of Abraham and Sarah, but he promised to do something good, and something good for them. See, it's not just that, that God is powerful, it's that he's also personal. 
It's not just that he's great, but he's also good. But he's not just good in the generic sense. He is good to us. God knew exactly what Sarah and Abraham needed. For years they had longed for a child, but Sarah was barren. And when God speaks here, he speaks directly to their deepest desire. It isn't just that God is great enough to do something miraculous and to miraculously meet a need, but the fact that he knows what their need is and what the miracle is that they need and then that that he has a desire to actually do something about it. Friend, you need to know that God is not only able to bless you, but he is willing to bless you. It'd be one thing if God were powerful, but not personal, right? Great, but not good. But he is all of it. And remember the nature of his promise, which we're seeing right here, the nature of his promise reveals the nature of his character. That God is not just good. Once again, let me say it, he is good to you. And so he's not Santa Claus, who is, who is sweet, but lacking power, but he's also not a superhero who is powerful, but aloof. God has both the power and the desire to meet our greatest needs. God saw Abraham and Sarah's greatest need and he spoke directly to it. Abraham and Sarah desired a child. And so God would give them a son. But what they didn't realize was that they actually needed something much more than a son. What they actually needed is what all of us need. They needed a savior. And so God said, I'm not only going to make you a great nation. I'm not just going to give you a son. And I'm not just going to give you great, 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 great grandchildren. But look what verse 2 says. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. Yes, but check this out. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. What's he talking about? Well, when God promised to Abraham later on, he speaks of a covenant. He says to him, I will make a covenant with you and your people. What he's talking about is that a couple thousand years later, the Messiah would come. Why would he come? So that we, uh, the barrier between us and God could be removed. And we could come back into relationship with God as God intended it to be at the beginning of creation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God made a way for us to come into relationship with him. See, when God repeats this promise in Genesis 17, he uses that word. He says, covenant. He says, covenant. I will make a covenant with you and your people. The heart of God's promise is to bring good to Abraham and to bring good to us, but the way in which the goodness would come would be through entering into a covenant relationship with God himself. This wasn't just promised to Abraham. It was promised to us through Abraham. For from Abraham would come the nation of Israel. And from the nation of Israel would come the Bible and the Savior. And through the Savior, Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And this is why these promises that we are studying this month are specifically connected to what we celebrate in the Advent season. Israel didn't always fulfill this this call to be a blessing to every nation. But what was glimpsed in Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so Paul the Apostle in the first century would write, the real children of Abraham are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. 
God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. You need to know today that if you have found yourself as a child of God because you've put faith in Jesus Christ, then you are blessed. You are favored among all people. Blessed is, uh, it's one of these overused but underappreciated words, right? But to be blessed means to have found delight, to, to be in a favored position. It means that you are going to have everything that you need and to receive it in abundance. And so you need to know today that if you put your trust in Jesus, you have been brought into the greatest blessing of all, a relationship with God from which flows rivers of living water. Those who are cursed, on the other hand, are those who intentionally or not have aligned themselves against God and will, in return, experience the consequence of that rejection. But for those who have become the children of God through faith in Jesus, you have become blessed. You are favored in the sight of God. And so then this reveals not just the great nature of God, but the good nature of God. All right, Dom, I get it, man. He's, he's great. He's powerful. And okay, yeah, I, I get that I can trust him, it sounds like. But how can I be, how can I be sure? I know that he's good. He's, he's great. But how can I be sure of this? Because I've been promised things before. And, and they, don't, they, don't, they don't happen, man. There's a lot of people out there who make a lot of empty promises. How can I be sure? Well, that's the last thing you need to know. You need to know that his promise of blessing is sure. In Numbers 23, it says, God's not a human that he should lie. He's not a human being that he would change his mind. Would God say something and then not act on it? Would God promise and not fulfill? And the answer to the rhetorical question is absolutely not. When God promises something, you can be sure that he will bring it to pass. Now, his timing may be a little bit different than what you had in mind. Right? Uh, it would be 25 years until this promise of God bringing a son to Abraham and Sarah would come to pass. You think they're old as 75? Abraham's 100 years old when God gives them the son. And by the way, keep in your back pocket for later. Sometimes maybe when God promises us something, we may not actually see it fulfilled until our children or a couple generations down. Remember, man, God blesses families. He does things through a family line. And so sometimes you may not see the full fulfillment of it. We think, that's it. God didn't do it. Man, well, sometimes we see in Scripture, He actually fully fulfills it as, as the lineage goes down the line. But the point is, He will fulfill what He said He's going to do. But it's rarely going to be in our timing. The reason we can bank on the fact that God will bring it to pass, though, is because we can bank on who God is. He does what he says. He's faithful to do what he's going to say. In fact, the Bible says that he can't not be faithful because he would be denying himself if he were to be unfaithful. It's who he is. And so his promise isn't based on us, it's not based on our character. It's not based on what we have or haven't done. It's based on who he is, which means then that it is guaranteed. You can be sure of it. I love how obvious it is in our passage here. 
You know who's taking the responsibility for the promise based on the pronouns that are used in the delivery. In verse 2 again, I, he's putting the impetus on him, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. He's not just saying, you're going to be blessed. It's not in a passive voice, like, this is going to happen. He's saying, I'm going to do it. It's going to happen, but I'm going to make it happen. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. To your offspring, I will give this land. And so this promise of blessing to Abraham, church, was rooted and grounded in, based on and guaranteed by not what Abraham would do, but by what God would do. God is not some stressed out, unpredictable schoolmaster changing his mind and actions depending on what you do. He is who he is, and he does what he does because of who he is, not because of who you are or what you do or don't do. Three chapters later in Genesis 15, God uh, has still not given them the, the promised son, and so Abraham asked God about it. And God shows Abraham this crazy vision. And in the vision, he once again declares the promise. He reminds him of the promise. And so Abraham, in response to God, does something that may seem a little bit crazy when you're in Genesis 15. He takes some animals and he cuts them in half and he puts the two pieces separated side by side. See, when a covenant was made in ancient times, uh, there was a couple of ways that you could establish it. Sometimes it was established like an agreement. You would agree, hey, you're going to do that. I'm going to do this. Let's both keep our, our ends of the agreement. But sometimes it was, it was arranged like a curse. If we do not fulfill the covenant, then may a curse be upon us. But sometimes they would demonstrate the covenantal agreement by doing exactly what Abraham did in here in Genesis 15. By cutting an animal in half and placing the, the pieces side by side with a gap between them. And then the two parties who were entering into the covenant would walk together through the animal sacrifice. So as to say, if we do not fulfill this covenant, may we be cut in half. May our bodies be cut. May we die, basically, if we do not fulfill this promise. And so Abraham, in Genesis 15, prepares the animal. But in the vision, something unexpected and profound happens. A fire pot appears, representing the presence of God. And God, by himself, not Abraham, God, by himself, passes through the sacrifice. God takes full responsibility for the fulfillment of the covenant. God takes full responsibility for the fulfillment of the covenant. And this is how it's been from the beginning of this promise, right? God's the one who initiated it. This wasn't Abraham's idea. God was the one who called him out. Abraham wasn't like, hey, Lord, is there a place called Canaan? Take me there. It was God's idea. It would be God who would eventually uh, open up Sarah's womb and give her a child. It would be God who would bless his seed and multiply them, and, and they would become a nation. It would be God who would deliver them from uh, slavery, bring them into the promised land. And it would eventually be God who would bring the promised Messiah through the seed of Abraham. You know, an agreement is only as good as the one making the agreement. God's blessing is sure because he is sure. God's promise of blessing is guaranteed because God is the one who guarantees it. Abraham didn't walk through that animal sacrifice. God did. 
Abraham just got to receive the benefits of it. This is how it is with the promise of God. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we can arrange. It's given to us as a gift and as a gift of grace. And it's got to be grace. When you look at Abraham's family, have you looked at his family after this? They don't deserve this. This isn't like something they could have earned. His nephew Lot and Lot's family are crazy. Read chapter 19. They're doing some evil, wicked things. And so much so that his wife gets turned into a pillar of salt. And then the, the, the descendants of Abraham, they're constantly rebelling. You ever read the Old Testament? They're constantly rebelling against God. Moses even disobeys God. Even Abraham and Sarah, several years later, God hasn't given them a son yet. And they're like getting impatient. They're like, whatever, dude, maybe we misunderstood God. He's not going to come through. Maybe God needs a little bit of help. Abraham, go ahead and sleep with this woman who's not your wife. Maybe that's how God's going to fulfill the promise. Even they disobeyed God. God did not bring the Messiah through this family line because of their great faithfulness. He did it because his faithfulness. And thank God, right? Because in spite of all of our failures in our lives, God will still be true to his promise. He will still be faithful. He will still make good on what he said he was going to do. Not because of us, often in spite of us. We too have fallen short. We too should be cut off from God. But Jesus came for us. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly. And when he did, he was cut off so that we could be brought near. Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus walked through the sacrifice. And when he did, he secured and guaranteed all the blessings of this great promise for us. Friend, there's nothing that you can do to deserve this promise of blessing, which means, listen to me, there is nothing that you can do to lose it either. It's not even in the conversation. It's not even a piece of the puzzle. He's not like, hey, I'll go 90 if you go 10. He's like, I'm going to go 100. You get to receive. Abraham didn't hold God's hand as he walked through the sacrifice. He wasn't cheering him on. God does it. He has done all the work. There's nothing you could do to earn it. There's nothing you could do to keep it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. His promise is sure. Unlike that unpredictable schoolmaster, you know exactly what you're going to get with God. He is powerful and he is good and he is always good and he's good to you. And so then he will make good on his promise. So then what are we left to do? Well, we're left to do exactly what Abraham did. We're left to receive. How do we receive? Well, we let go of the things that are hindering us from receiving. We let go of the distractions. We let go of the idolatry that is taking our affections. We let go of the sin that is tangling us up. We let go of the, the things that are creating a toxic mindset and thought pattern that is outside of how God wants us to be thinking about himself and our lives and one another. We have to let go to grab hold, right? If I'm holding, if I'm holding this right now, like this is what we do. We just walk around like this. Like, yo, I'm like, 
Hey, can you give me, can I have your coffee cup? Can you just give it to me real quick? Please bring it up here. Just hand it to me. Just, yeah, thank you. I just, right? Like, I can't grab hold of the coffee cup until I put the pulpit down, right? We carry around these burdens, like I'm going to receive from God the blessing and carry all my baggage around at the same time. But we got to let go. That's the surrender, right? We got to let go so that we can grab hold of. We got to let go so that we can grab hold of. And so how do we receive? Well, it's two parts, right? It's, it's letting go. It's opening up our hands to let go so that we can receive once again. And that's our part. That's our response to God. And listen, we all know that's a lot harder done than said, right? It, it requires some sacrifice for us to let go. But friend, you got to know that the promise of God's blessing is so much better than whatever you're holding on to. I had to deal with it. I'm just going to tell you guys something because apparently I preached a little short last service. I got two minutes extra right now, okay? We just bought this house. It's a total fixer rubber. Super fun, exciting. Love it. Every time we do something on it, I'm like, oh, I'm like a research king, right? I just go to the nth degree researching all the things. So we needed a new roof. Expensive. Roofs are expensive. We needed a new roof. And the, the roofer was like, hey, go drive and see some other roofs to make sure that the color is right. So we drive all the way down to L.A. And we drive to all these other houses, look at all these different roofs because we want to see it in real life. We don't want to base it off of the, the picture on the website. And we do all this work. And my wife's like, baby, why do we have to drive to L.A.? Just pick the color off the website. We go down to L.A. I'm like, I'm like this is a lot of money. We're going to spend a lot of money. I want to make sure it's right. It's going to be on our roof for the next 50 years. I want to make sure it's right. So we pick it out. The roofer is 11 weeks later, he finally comes, does the insulation. They're halfway through our roof, and I come home from work, and I'm like, that's not the color we picked. I call the roofer. He's like, dude, I'm looking at your thing right now. This is the color you picked. Turns out the house in L.A. was facing a different direction, and when the roof faces a different direction and the sun hits the shingles a little bit different, the color changes. Nobody told me this. I thought I was getting a dark charcoal roof. Now I got a blue roof. And so I'm jacked. I'm like, not good. I had to like lead prayer or something at church that next moment. No, I was a, it was a prayer worship night. I came to church. Those of you guys who saw me were just like, oh yeah, Dom's not, Dom's not happy. And so I'm trying to figure out how am I going to fix this thing? I got to fix this thing. And I'm feeling like, dang it, I made a bad decision. We're going to waste thousands of dollars on this thing. And I can't even change it. It's not like, you know, a floor that you might change in 10 years. You're never going to change a roof. I'm going to die with this roof. The dude's like, hey, it's going to be seven grand for you to change it. I can't change it. And so I'm like jacked. Sitting with the Lord at the prayer meeting. And the Lord just says to me, hey, dude, this, your, house is, your house is God right now. That's why you're so like, jacked up about this. Like, that's why it's so hard for you. you. You have made a good thing a great thing, Dom. And if you keep doing this, that house is going to break your heart, son. It's going to break your heart. I don't want your heart broken. Because friends, truth is, good things can become great things like that. And God is the only great thing. He's the only one who deserves that place of preeminence in our life. He's the only one who deserves the place of God in our lives. And when we are our joy, what happened was all of my joy started getting wrapped up in picking the right finishes on our house and seeing it installed in just the right way. And so when it wasn't installed in just the right way or just the right color, my joy was taken away. And that exposed the idolatry of my heart. 
And the truth is, idols will always break the hearts of their worshipers. God loves us too much. And so we got to let go of that stuff. And it was good. I was glad the Lord was like, dude, you got to let go now, bro, because this isn't the last time this is going to happen. If your joy is wrapped up in this thing, then your heart's going to get broken. Friend, if your joy is wrapped up in something today other than God, you have to let go. You have to let go so that you can once again fully grab hold of the Lord. You have to. You have to. And so if God is bringing up something right now, and you're like, but I don't want to let go of that, you might need to let go of it in order to grab hold of God. And so that's what we're going to do in the second set right now. We're going to have some time where it's just like, Gosh, man, all right, I need to surrender. I need to let go of some things. That's why we have the second set. It's a time of response. That's why we have the carpets. We can come and take a posture of surrender before God. I'll tell you what, man, if, if you don't have a habit of getting on your knees before God, I would encourage you to do so. If you don't have a habit of lifting your hands, I would encourage you to do so. If you don't have a habit of singing out loud and speaking out loud, I would encourage you to do so. And here's why. Because often our hearts follow what, what our bodies do. And so I could be like, yeah, I probably need to surrender to God. I probably need to, <laughs> okay, Lord, I surrender. Right? Like sometimes our hearts follow the posture that we take. The prayer team is here to, to, to bring these things to the Lord with you. If you recognize, gosh, man, I got something that's distracting me. And yeah, it's going to break my heart. I've kind of let it like compete with God a little bit. I, I need to let go of that. The, the prayer team is going to be up on the right and the left. They want to take that to the Lord with you. Like my counselor friend says, man, sometimes you got to name it to tame it. So speak it out. D declare it. Confess it so that you can get rid of it, so you, you can surrender it and receive the promise of blessing from God. So as we move into the set right now, that's what we're going to do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these promises that we see in Scripture. We thank you for this particular promise to Abraham and to Sarah. We thank you for not just what it says about you back then, but what it means for us right now. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus so that we could be saved. We thank you that the, the sin that separated us from you could be removed so that we could come back into relationship with you like you originally intended at the beginning of creation. But God, our hearts have a tendency to wander. And so if our hearts have wandered a bit, we just want to come back now. Thank you that repentance is a beautiful thing. Thank you that when we repent and turn back to you, times of refreshing come. There is no burden in the repentance. There is a blessing of refreshment in the repentance. And so we ask that you would draw our hearts to do that. The communion elements are up here. As you take communion today, remember that the only way, Christian, you have access to this promise of blessing is because of what Christ did on the cross. Because his body was broken. Because his blood was shed. When you take the communion elements today, remember that, oh my goodness, Jesus, you were broken so that I could be made whole. Your life was poured out so that I could be restored. Come and take communion as we begin to sing right now. The prayer team will be up on the right and the left. They would love to pray with you. The carpets are available for you to take a posture of responding to God. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus yet, you need to know that this promise is for you too. And you receive it through putting your faith in Jesus. You come to him and you say, Jesus, I need you. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I want to have a relationship with you. Please save me. Please forgive me. My life is yours and he will do it. 
Let's respond now.